You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Last Sunday, we marked a high point in the life of our church. We celebrated the testimony of God's grace in the lives of 14 people, men and women as, as they came forward to be baptized in accordance with Jesus' command in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The New Testament teaches us that baptism is where a person publicly testifies to Christ, to their faith in Christ, and where God's people affirm that the credibility of the person's faith. Baptism in that uh, moment is faith going public. It's our public affirmation of a person's public profession of faith. Today, we mark another high point in the life of our church. We're celebrating the ordination of Max Kozak. We're calling him as an elder to serve at City's Church. And so the sermon this morning is gonna look a little bit different than it normally does. And so if you're visiting with us, this is not our typical uh, Sunday morning. We're going to celebrate together God's kindness to us, not only last week in the gift of testimonies of God's grace, but here now we're going to celebrate God's gift to us in giving us elders for the church. So this morning is going to look a little bit different. There are going to be two parts to the sermon. In the first part, I'm going to explain what ordination is, and we're going to look together at 2 Timothy and how it tells us to identify the kind of men we should call to pastoral ministry. So that's gonna be the first part. The second part is gonna be very short and it's gonna be very direct. I'm gonna remind us as a congregation of the responsibility that we have to receive and to support the leaders of the church. And then I'm going to remind Max of his responsibilities on behalf of our congregation. So at the end of the second part, I'm gonna invite Max, I'm gonna invite uh, Max and the elders forward and we're gonna lay hands on him and pray for him as he enters into this season of ministry as an elder at Cities. So two parts. First, this context, what is ordination? What is ordination and who do we ordain? And then the second part, a charge. What are our responsibilities as a congregation? And what are Max's responsibilities? So with that in view, let's pray together. Father, I do ask this morning that you would pour out now uh, more grace on us. We, we look to you with hearts full of thanksgiving. You have given us so much. Jesus has secured for us not only the forgiveness of sins, not only eternal life, but Jesus, you are now pouring out on us by your spirit gifts for the church. And so we give you thanks. And I ask this morning that the meditation of, that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so part one, what is ordination? Ordination is just a churchy word. It's a churchy word for setting apart or affirming 
or appointing. We could call ordination a setting apart service or an affirmation service. Doesn't that sound like there should be some warm fuzzies involved in an affirmation service? Or an appointment service, which sounds like you're taking your car uh, to get its oil changed. But just calling it ordination is a little bit less clunky. The New Testament witnesses to us of a variety of gifts that God pours out through his spirit upon the church. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 12, Paul tells us that when Christ ascended, he poured out gifts on the church. Paul says that certain gifts are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In God's wisdom, his plan from before the beginning of time was in Christ to pour out on the church gifts for God's people to be equipped for ministry. Ordination is just the church's public recognition of God's setting apart a person to ministry to that end. The scriptures teach us that divine authority doesn't come down from bishops and presbyters, but instead flows up. It flows up from members of the local church to its chosen leaders. And those leaders must meet the qualifications that are laid out in scripture. We see those and we've addressed those in sermon series in the past in 1 Timothy chapter three and as we've looked together in the letter to Titus. So leaders have to be equipped. They must meet those qualifications laid out in scriptures and they have to experience the internal personal sense of God's calling into the service of the saints. And they need to have this calling affirmed by the local body. And we can see examples of ordination in the church's appointing of Paul and Barnabas to gospel ministry among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. Or we can see it in the appointment of Timothy as an elder and pastor to the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter four. Ordination in the church developed as a way of acknowledging the continuation of Jesus's ministry. The continuation of Jesus's ministry as he poured out his spirit on the church in raising up leaders to equip the church for ministry. And in ordination, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is still pouring out on our congregation gifts, pouring out gifts for the equipping of us for ministry in our homes and in our cities and to the nations. So it's important to emphasize something critical about ordination. Ordination is a special ministry 
It's not a superior one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us that the gifts of the Spirit are manifested in every believer for the good of the church. Gifts are apportioned, he says, to each one individually as the Spirit wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. And every gift is essential to the health and to the proper functioning of the church. Ministry as an elder is a special ministry for equipping the church. It's not a superior one. In fact, over several centuries, the church fell into a serious misrepresentation of pastoral calling. Ordination became a way of establishing the spiritual superiority of pastors over congregants. In fact, by the 16th century, the Roman church believed that only pastors could be called by the Spirit of Christ to ministry in the world. Ordinary believers, like you and me, we could not be considered, we could not consider our trade or our profession a holy calling. Only the calling of the clergy was holy. But the Protestant Reformation corrected that error by returning the church to biblical faithfulness. Martin Luther wrote, pastors are neither different from other Christians nor superior to them, except that they are charged with the administration of the word of God and the sacraments. So when we talk about ordination, ordination is not the bestowal of some special or sacred status above that of the ordinary Christian. An elder's calling is not higher, it's humbler. An elder's service is not superior, it is supportive. Elders are not to be put on some pedestal of spiritual superiority. Elders are super servants, not super saints. Elders are workers for our joy in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Elders are laborers for our holiness and maturity, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Elders exist to equip us for the work of ministry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Elders are guardians of gospel purity, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Elders are brother pastors, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Elders are under shepherds. They are under shepherds to the chief shepherd himself, 1 Peter 5, 2. So ordination signifies that an elder is set apart as a servant to the servants of God. That's what ordination is. That's what we're doing this morning. A friend of mine is, uh, is shopping for a ring right now, and I'm sure you can imagine what that is for. Have you ever noticed that when a jeweler wants to show off the beauty and brilliance of a diamond, have you ever noticed what he does? He takes that little tiny diamond and he sets it on a dark background, right? And then he shines a bright light on it. The dark background, by contrast, highlights 
the diamonds sparkle. And that's where our text in 2 Timothy this morning comes in. Paul uses chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, as a foil. He shows that the, counter, the counterfeit spirituality of false teachers is the dark background that sets off the beauty and the brilliance of a servant to the servants of God. So in chapter 3, verse 1, in the text that we read, Paul is telling Timothy what to expect. He says, accept what I'm about to tell you. There will be times of difficulty in the last days. When Paul says here in the last days, he's not referring to some distant time down in the future. The apostles, beginning with Peter's sermon at Pentecost, recognized that the death of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, ushered in a new era. And that new era, the last days, is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. When the message of the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus would go to all nations. It's a time that is distinctively characterized by the indwelling of the Spirit of God in the people of God, the church. But it's also the time where the forces of evil will align themselves against God and against his redeemed people. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the last days will be characterized by those who will manipulate the truth and who will do so for their own selfish ends. And what Timothy is seeing now is not just a temporary reality, but something that will continue until the return of Jesus at the end of time. Now we know that Paul is speaking of false teachers here because of what he says in verse six, that some of these will creep into households on account of their leadership or influence. Paul also compares them a little bit later on in verse eight to two well-known opposition leaders in Egypt who tried to show that they could produce the same results as the God of Israel. False teachers, in other words, might not, on the face of things, appear to be false, right? Their success, their charisma, might make it seem like their message is true. But Paul urges Timothy to look more carefully at their lives. So what are these people like? Paul uses 17 adjectives to describe them. Look at the text here. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Back in 2020, we preached through this letter, the letter, uh, this second letter to Timothy, 
And Pastor Joe preached on this text, and I'd encourage you to go back to that sermon to dive a little bit deeper. But for now, I just want you to notice one thing. Notice that the thread that ties this list together is selfishness. Now, while it might not be immediately apparent when we see a charismatic leader, the selfish leader makes himself God. And in doing so, he makes all other things serve his own gratification, even people. That's why here Paul in verses six through seven that's what Paul means here in verses six through seven. He says, for among them are those who creep into, that, creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So what Paul is reminding us here is that false teachers target and leverage vulnerable people, especially those whose faith is not grounded They take advantage of those who are enslaved to patterns of sin or who are mired in self-pity or who are hoping for some fresh insight to change their life while reluctant to obey the basic commands of the Lord Jesus. So a warning sign of a false teacher is someone who targets and gains a following primarily among people who are eager for this new teaching but fickle in Christian obedience. A counterfeit leader needs, a counterfeit leader needs people to affirm and praise his excellencies because he is, in fact, as Paul says here in verse five, a lover of self, swollen with conceit. In fact, Paul goes on to compare these spiritual counterfeits to men in Israel's history. He names two particular men, Jonas and Jambres. Jonas and Jambres, in verse, uh, chapter three, verse eight, says in the same way that Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, these false teachers, opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So Jonas and Jambres are the names that Jewish tradition in the early church gave to two, the two showy magicians that served in Pharaoh's court at the time of the Exodus. And through Exodus seven, and and though Exodus seven through nine doesn't mention them by name, the people of Israel came to associate the two magicians with the two ideas of opposition and rebellion. Those two words, opposition and rebellion, are rough, They, they sound like what these two guys' names are. And so Paul brings these two guys in as illustrations of the counterfeit teachers in Ephesus. They're crowd-pleasing, attention-seeking men who claim to have great power, but who stood in direct opposition to the God of Israel. In the same way that Jonas and Jambres stood before Pharaoh and opposed Moses, so also these false teachers are, verse eight, opposing the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the fate of these false teachers in Ephesus will be the same as the fate of these false teachers, of the magicians in Egypt. He says, verse nine, they will not advance to much for their folly will be manifest 
as it was of those men. This is why Paul commends Timothy and those who are hearing the letter of 2 Timothy read to avoid such men. And what Paul is doing here now is providing a contrast. The the counterfeit spirituality of these false teachers contrasts the kind of leader that Timothy is to be. Look at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So Paul contrasts these false teachers with his own ministry, a ministry that, Paul, that Timothy knows very well. Nearly 20 years earlier, Timothy had watched Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel at Lystra. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 14 that the opposition was so strong to the message of the gospel that Paul was stoned and he was dragged out of the city and left for dead. That's where Timothy first encounters Paul. 20 years before the moment that this letter is written. And when Paul returned to Lystra, two years later, Luke records in Acts 16, Timothy joins him. And over the next decade and a half, they preached the gospel, they appointed elders, they planted churches, they pastored together in Ephesus, and they sent letters together to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to their friend Philemon. Perhaps no one else, perhaps no one knew Paul's gospel ministry better than Timothy. And so Paul is calling Timothy to remember his example and to remember the gospel that Paul has preached. And so what is this gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is real, Galatians 1 verse 1, that because of his perfect life and his substitutionary death, we can be reconciled to God, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, that in Jesus we can find forgiveness of our sin and our rebellion and rescue from the wrath that we deserve, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, that by faith we are united to Jesus in a new life, that will not be defeated by death, Romans chapter six, verses three through six, that with Jesus, we are safe from our adversary and from all of his works and from all of his ways, 2 Thessalonians chapter three, verse three, that the deepest needs and desires of our hearts are met in Jesus because we are made for him, Ephesians chapter one, verse three, that Jesus will carry all of our burdens and comfort us in all of our sorrows. Philippians chapter four, verse four, that because Jesus reigns, we don't have to live as slaves. We are slaves to none and servants to all. Galatians chapter five, verse 13, that one day soon, 
Jesus himself will return and usher us into the fullness of joy at his right hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul reminds Timothy that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so what kind of life then does this gospel result in? It doesn't result in a life of selfish ambition like the false teachers. It doesn't result in one that makes all other things a means to one's own gratification. Instead, it is a life of joyful sacrifice for the sake of others. And perhaps no one knew this better than Timothy in his witness of the character that the Spirit produced in Paul. Here's what Timothy saw. He saw that Paul lived in dependence upon God. Perhaps the place that Timothy saw this most clearly was in Paul's constant dependence upon God in prayer. In every letter, Paul expressed to the churches his constant prayers on their behalf before God. Their joy and progress in the faith depended on God's work, not his. And so he prayed that God would strengthen the Ephesians to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that they might be filled to all the fullness of God. Timothy saw Paul's dependence on God. Secondly, Timothy saw Paul, the joy that Paul experienced in living in holiness. The power for holiness came in living in light of good's design. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, while God designed us for satisfaction, for joy, for intimacy, and for pleasure, he warned the Thessalonians that we often take shortcuts in chapter four and make good things into God's. Holiness then meant restoring goods to the right order by acknowledging God as the giver of all good things. So Timothy saw in Paul's life and in his example, dependence on God, joy in holiness. Third, he saw how Paul made scripture his treasure. Paul's reminder here to Timothy in chapter three, verse 16, underscores that reality. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The scriptures don't simply tell us about God. They are God's words. They are God's words. Paul's competence as a pastor, Paul's usefulness as a servant of God came through making scripture his treasure. So Paul lived in dependence on God. Paul knew the joy of holiness. Paul made the scriptures his treasure. And finally, Timothy saw that Paul gave others God. Paul gave his life to see Christ formed in others. He made it his aim to point others to Christ. Where others like these false teachers 
made much of themselves. Paul made it his aim for people to see past him to Christ. He constantly labored for others to see and to know the Lord Jesus, to know that in Christ they could find rest, that they could find comfort, and they could find strength, not from Paul, but in Christ. During the Civil War, the Confederacy attempted to destroy the economy of the North, and they did it in a very unusual way. They did it by counterfeiting U.S. currency. And so in 1865, the Treasury Department created the Secret Service with the sole purpose of identifying and destroying forgeries. And so to this day, if you ask the Secret Service how to spot a counterfeit bill, they'll tell you that you don't discover a forgery by studying counterfeits. You discover a forgery by studying the genuine article. The way to guard against the counterfeit spirituality of the false teachers is not by studying the false teachers. It's to look at their opposite. And that's why Paul exhorts Timothy to remember his gospel and to imitate his way of life. And so that's why we as a church are selective in the men that we ordain as servants to the servants of God. We appoint men who love Jesus and whose love for Jesus is evident in their walk with him and in their love for others. We appoint men who not only know the gospel, but whose lives manifestly display it. We appoint men whose internal subjective calling to gospel ministry through prayer and fasting has been affirmed by those who know their life and their doctrine. And we believe together that this is what characterizes Max Kozak. So we've talked about what ordination is. We've seen the example that Paul provides to us of the kind of people that we ought to look to as servants of the servants of God. And now we turn to part two. I promised it will be very short. We turn to part two where we as a congregation are going to, I on behalf of you as fellow covenant members, I'm gonna give some charges first to us as a congregation and then secondly, to Max. So brothers and sisters, as a pastor, as a fellow covenant member, I am calling you, the, member, the members of Cities Church, to two things. First, pray for Max. As an elder, Paul's repeated request to the churches is pray for us. Your praying is what God will use to bless others through Max's proclamation of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Your praying is what God will use to open doors for Max's gospel ministry in the most difficult places and with the most difficult people. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. It is what God will use 
to expand the gospel's reach, to quicken the gospel's acceptance, and to deliver Max from evil and wicked men. It's what Paul prays for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Your praying, Paul says, is what God will use to preserve him in faith, to deepen his sanctification, to guard him from sin, to give him joy and service, and to multiply the blessing that he is to you and to others. The Lord Jesus has given us, this church, gifts of elders like this man, and he is designed for his work through Max to be accomplished through your prayers. So pray for him. Secondly, I'm calling you, the members of Cities Church, to heed his counsel and follow his instruction. The calling to eldership is a sober responsibility. It's for those whose qualifications have been examined and whose call has been tested. And the members of this body have affirmed God's calling and found Matt, Max, fit to serve in the ministry of word and prayer. And so your solemn responsibility is to test his teaching and counsel in light of the scriptures and to follow it. You shouldn't accept counsel from him that is contrary to scripture, but you shouldn't reject counsel from him that you simply don't like. Remember that Max is an under-shepherd to Christ. He's called to watch over your souls as one who will have to give an account. He is to feed, to correct, to defend, to protect, to heal, and to comfort. Be willing to listen with patience, even when it hurts. Believe the best, don't assume the worst. Let him serve with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Brothers and sisters, heed Max's counsel and follow his instruction. And so now, Max, brother, to you. Max, this congregation has affirmed you and called you as one empowered by the Holy Spirit for service to the church. And as your friend and brother and congregant and fellow pastor, I charge you with four things. One, first, brother, depend on God. You are an amazingly competent person. You can fix broken cars and broken pipes and broken bodies. You can play multiple instruments and speak multiple languages. You can help me understand the nuance of a preposition in our elder affirmation of faith and English is my first language. You can write and speak with clarity and precision. But brother, we need and we want something better and greater than a competent pastor. We need you to be dependent upon God. Show that dependence by being a man of prayer. Pray for us like we see Paul pray for the churches, regularly, sensitively, specifically, urgently. 
Don't serve him out of your own strength. Don't counsel us from your own experience. Don't love us with your own love. Lean on God to be the source of your every work of faith and your every labor of love. Brother, depend on God. Secondly, brother, be holy. As our elders like to say to one another, we don't care about your giftedness, we care about your holiness. A life of humble service is a sweet blessing, but it is also often difficult, thankless, and marked with peculiar suffering. And our adversary despises the gospel and he hates those who labor for others' joy. He will tempt you with ingratitude and self-pity and bitterness and impurity and a thousand other shortcuts to comfort and pleasure. He aims to hollow you out like the teachers of 2 Timothy chapter 3 so that you would live with an appearance of godliness but lack its power. Brother, we need you to be holy. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and in purity. You must make it your aim every day to live in vital union with Christ Jesus. The hope for that holiness is in drawing near to him, in being shaped by his priorities, in being discipled by his word, in being led by his spirit, in serving in his strength. Max, brother, be holy. The third exhortation. Brother, be a man of the word. Like Timothy, you've had the great blessing of instruction in the scriptures from an early age. You've studied them, you've memorized them, you've prayed them, you've applied them, you've witnessed men and women persevere in indescribable hardship because of their dependence and reliance on the God-breathed scripture. Brother, these are God's words, and we as a congregation need you to know them. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Don't undervalue their profit for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As one who is called in service to the church, the scriptures are what make you competent, equipped for every good work. Max, brother, be a man of the word. And finally, brother, we ask you to give us Jesus. We're gonna be needy. We're gonna lose jobs, spouses, children. We're gonna be disheartened and uncertain and lonely and lost. We're gonna get sick. We're gonna face death. And you're gonna sit with us as we face suffering of every kind. And in those moments, we need you to give us Jesus. We need his fullness. Jesus needs to not only be the source of your ministry, but the substance of your ministry. Point us 
to his moral beauty, to his perfect wisdom, to his unfailing love, to his unrelenting justice, to his fatherly tenderness. Paul's sober exhortation to preach the word means just that. Give us a great big picture of a great big God in every season, in every situation, with complete patience and teaching. Brother, give us Jesus. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm gonna invite you up here, Max, and the elders up here together. We're gonna pray uh, for Max, uh, and I would encourage you to join us uh, in spirit as we bless Max and as we uh, call him together uh, to gospel ministry. Father, together we give you thanks. You are so kind to us. You pour out your gifts on your church in men like the the men gathered here uh, around us in this moment. These aren't the only gifts, but you have appointed these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so together, the 10 of us say, who is sufficient for these things? We need you. Because we want your name to be made great in our lives, by our lives, and in this church, and in this city, and in this world. And so you bless Max as he enters into this season of service as an elder at City's Church. Will you keep him holy? Will you make him dependent upon you? Will you make him a man of your word? And will you help him give us Jesus? Pour out your blessing on him and through him. On us we pray. Because we ask you, the giver of every good and perfect gift, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so now the elders, as the servants to you, servants of God, we're going to serve you the Lord's table. And first we're going to serve the bread. You can just hold it, then I'll come back up, and we're going to eat it all together. His body, the body of Jesus, is the true bread. Let us serve you. 